All right, once again, wonderful to worship together, to soak in him. We're looking forward to soon, some of us anyway, that feel safe to be together uh, in actual same location. Be wonderful. Uh, We are so grateful for that. And uh, so if you know where we've been going, I actually did it slightly out of order, but uh, Jeremiah 30 to 33 are really the, the great grace vision. And so 31 from last week is really justification, 32 from two weeks ago, sanctification. And now we're really going to talk about glorification, future vision. What if God showed you the rest of history? He said, here, I'll show you the whole plan. Well, that's what he does in Jeremiah 33. Read with me, Jeremiah 33, verse 3. He says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. So let's give you some context here. Uh, and we'll give you a bit of context. We'll do a little bit of teaching here before we jump into a classic sermon. So Jeremiah 33.3, I'll show you great and wonderful things. So the context here, as it has been for this whole series of messages from Jeremiah in 30, 31, 32, and 33, is doom looms. Babylon has been surrounding Jerusalem probably for around a year. They're in their last year of life uh, as a city, surviving as a city. Weak King Zedekiah can't decide whether to submit to the God's word coming through Jeremiah or keep daydreaming that maybe he'll be like Hezekiah and God will supernaturally save the city. But the prophets have told him, no, that's not going to happen here. All of Jeremiah's dire predictions are about to come true. And worst of all for <laughs> Jeremiah... He is in prison. Sometimes he's under house arrest, and part of the time he's actually in the bottom of a muddy well because they're trying to kill him, but they don't want to get blood on their hands, so they're just going to throw him in a well, kind of like Joseph's brothers did to him. And in the middle of this context comes these visions, this amazing vision of hope, and especially this last one. But to summarize where we've been, chapter 30, Judah and northern Israel restored and united in worship, amazing, And then last week, chapter 31, the new covenant that brings forgiveness and knowing God. Chapter 32, the new covenant that brings transformation to our lives. Well, then, you know, verse 33, verse 3, chapter 33, verse 3, what more could he see, right? That sounds so great. Um, Well, what happens in chapter 33, we won't look at it all, a lot of it in detail, but to give you a summary, verses 4 to 14, there's another Judgment's coming, but restoration, so very similar to chapters 30 and 31. Then in verses 15 and 16, the branch of David is called the Lord our righteousness, a very much in Christ kind of phrase, very similar to chapter 31, salvation. And then, oddly, in verses 17 to 22, Levites are mentioned. Huh. Well, we'll come back to that, all right? But what I want you to see, first of all, we'll do a little Bible study, is I want you to see that in the passage we're looking at today, theologically and exegetically, four covenants from the old covenant are woven into the new covenant. The promise to David in 3315, you can look at it, in those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. 
All right, so that's going to remind you of uh, other passages in Jeremiah, but also, of course, of Isaiah 11, the great branch prophecy, a stump, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, different Hebrew word, but same concept, right? As well as later prophets like Zechariah that build on this idea that there's a Messiah person in the line of David and the promise in verse 17, for this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So here's a repeat of 2 Samuel 7, 16, that there's this messianic person from the line of David that will always be on the throne. And this, of course, is fulfilled in Christ, right? Jesus is on the throne even today. Okay, that's familiar. Then there's a second covenant that is probably less familiar a promise to the Levites. Read verse 18. Uh, Nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, burn grain offerings, and present sacrifices. The Levites. Now, you know, like, what is that? Well, we'll talk about how that gets fulfilled. But I thought I'd take a little time today and just help you understand what's going on with that. What's the deal with the Levites? So look with me. Read with me Numbers 33, excuse me, Numbers 25, uh, a paragraph there, verses 6 to 13. So, uh, oops, Leviticus, that's not it. <laughs> Numbers 25, it's a terrible time, time of rebellion. They're very frustrated and angry because uh, uh, they not, don't get to go into the promised land. They've got to wait a generation. And so while they're, actually, no, that's not right. This is the new generation. They're getting ready. And uh, they're outside Moab, and Moab cannot get Balaam to curse them. So then Balaam gives them an idea. He says, look, uh, we find that Balaam's the idea behind it, the guy that had the idea. We found it in Deuteronomy. But in this passage, he says you need to get them to commit idolatry. So read verses 6 through uh, 9. Then an Israelite man brought to his family, a Midianite woman, right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. While Phineas, when Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through the both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plagues against the Israelites was stopped of those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. For he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Wow. So what's going on? What's the big deal? It wasn't just intermarriage. They had little idolatrous houses, and they were, not to be too blunt here, be a little delicate, but their houses were just big enough for a man to lay on top of a woman. You can figure out the rest. And so it was a, uh, it was a sexual, idolatrous act and uh, may have been connected to fertility. And uh, this guy was doing it right in front of the whole nation when they were repenting. And Phineas just says, this is wrong. And he you know, drives his spirit through the both of them. And God says uh, to him, uh, he was as zealous as I am for my honor among him. Oh, sorry, verse 12. Therefore tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. Verse 12. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. 
Now, this is not one we talk about a lot, but it's a, so there's a covenant with David, but there's a covenant with Phineas, one of the Levites, uh, because of his zeal for God. Then there's another covenant that's alluded to in Jeremiah 33. And uh, let's look at verses 19, 20, and 21. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David and my servant, David my servant, and my covenant with the Levites who are priests can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant. So in other words, if you can make day and night go away, then okay, it's all done. Well, you can't do that, right? But who does that allude to? Who got the covenant concerning days and seasons? Noah. So if you want to read it, I'm not going to today, but Genesis 8, 22, God makes a promise to Noah after the flood that, that day and night seed time and harvest will never again be impacted, that you can rely on the stability of time. Covenant with Noah. And then verse 22 of Jeremiah 33, a fourth covenant is alluded to here. It says, I'll make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Who can tell me what covenant that alludes to? Three of you are here. Can somebody help me? Okay, no one wants to say it out loud. Okay, Bill will do it, yeah. Abraham, yes. <laughs> okay, right? So notice in this short prophetic passage in Jeremiah, he's got promises to David, promises to the Levites, alluding to the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham. Now ministering Levites, instead of just descendants of Abraham, will be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Now Abraham descendants are all Levites, right? What's, what's going on here? What does it mean? Well, first of all, it means that even in eternity, day and night will never fail, that there's some kind of time sense even in eternity. If you've wondered that, I have, and maybe you haven't. Don't worry about it anyway. Okay, so secondly, the son of David, Jesus, reigns forever. We know this, right? But thirdly, and this is the surprise we want to explore this morning, that in some sense, there is a Levitical priesthood through Abraham forever, and it's huge. In fact, it's just as big as the descendants of Abraham. How big is that? Well, count the stars. And who gets that, right? So who are these priests today? Well, who are the sons of Abraham today? As Paul teaches us, they are those who believe like Abraham. And so the Levites, who are the same group, <laughs> are those who pray like Abraham. So do they all have Levi's DNA? Yes. As Paul says, his spiritual DNA, yes, they do. So who are these priests today? Well, it's the church. But to get a picture of what this looks like, we're going to move a little bit out of Jeremiah today, and we're going to take just a little bit of time in Malachi. Malachi builds on Jeremiah's teaching. He comes later. Um, he comes about 450 B.C., so quite a bit later, actually. But he talks about this same concept, this covenant with Levi, Phineas, and, and what it's about. And so I'm going to read to you Malachi chapter 2. Maybe I'll read uh, 
4, 5, and 6, just to give you a little feel here. And then we'll mainly focus on verses 5 and 6. So he's in the middle of rebuking the priests of his day. And he says, and you know that I sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, he wants this, this covenant with the physical descendants of Levi, the priests, that he wants it to continue. Now, we know that doesn't ultimately happen. And like with everything else, it comes by faith. But, but he says of this, here's the, here's the picture I want you to see. So I'm going to read these two verses. Then we're going to unpack them to understand what does it mean to be a priest in, the, in, in this way. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence and he crumbled in awe before my name. Faithful covenant instruction was in his mouth and and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and many he turned from sin. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd open our spirits in these days to grasp the place that we have in Christ and to be priests in our day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're called to be priests. But what are we to be like? Well, good priests have several qualities. The first quality of a good priest is a solid foundation. Notice in verse 5, God gave him life and peace. All right, my covenant with him was life and peace. And I gave them to him. Spiritual streams of life and peace with God. It's so great. And what I love about this passage is it, it pictures both sides. The tremendous experience of the goodness of God and then not responding in carelessness, but I like to translate the Hebrew phrase, and he crumbled in awe before my name, right? So that, that it was grace and peace, but not a careless grace and peace, but a, oh my gosh, I know God. And he crumbled in awe before my name. He just had this Phineas, just, you know, that we just read it. He's just this awe before God. Listen, reverence, without joy and peace produces harsh, overly scary, judgmental believers. Just reverence without joy and peace. But peace without reverence produces worldly Christians. We need peace and reverence. Let me say that again. You can have a deep awareness of the fear and reverence of God and people might just look at you like, I don't know what that guy has. I don't want it, right? They're just, it's just too alienating. And you can be like, oh, Jesus loves me. He's my buddy. But your life is so messed up, there's no, tra- there's no challenge in it. But when you have a peace with God, you know, hallelujah. God's forgiven me. I'm at peace. I'm at rest. But I'm at rest with a holy God. And, and God didn't become less holy in the new covenant. When you have that, you know, soak yourself in God's grace. Kind of make a metaphorical picture. Soak yourself in God's grace and maybe close your eyes. This is all just kind of a a metaphor. And then sneak up, get close to him. Okay, grace, 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 grace. And then open your eyes. Oh my gosh. 
Who have I drawn near to? And you crumble in awe, not fear, crumble in awe. You see who God really is. My friends, the Bible tells us that someday every one of us will be, oh man, <laughs> we will be in the presence of the undiminished glory. We'll get new bodies so we can stand it and not die. And we're going to be in the undiminished glory of God. And it's going to be all light and truth and love. But there is going to be no excuses. There's going to be no conning. There's going to be no, well, I was just too busy. It, just, like, it is like the undiminished glory of God. And you're going to want to be, you're going to be so glad you know Jesus and you're forgiven, but you're going to want to be like, I hope, Lord, God, I, oh yeah, I want to make the most of my life, not in drivenness, not in fear, but I don't want to waste my life. So I can give account for my hours and how I lived for the love and glory of God. You'll bow down, but with joy. So the first quality of a good priest is a foundation in truth and grace. But there's a second quality of good priest, and that is, in verse 6, true instruction or faithful covenant instruction. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. Uh, what the NIV translates true instruction, it's, uh, it's actually um, emet Torah. And, and emet is, is, yeah, it's true, that's right. It's not a bad translation, but it's, it's not just like true like it's the facts. It's like uh, it's the... It's the, it's the faithful reality of the foundation of the universe, right? It's like it is, it is true to what is there. It is faithfully, reliably true. And it's not going to change, and, you, and you're not going to move it in any way. And faithful, reliable what? Faithful, reliable Torah, which, yes, is law, but here I think the NIV correctly translated instruct. It's not just rules. It's instruction in how life's to be lived. And so what, what the person, a, a priestly person in our day, not just a pastor, although I certainly need to do this, but a priestly person in our day immerses themselves in truth for your own soul, of course, but also so that you can, you can contemplate the Bible and society and the lies we hear and what the Bible says, and you can bring forth solid truth that is it's faithful to what is real. I'm not against, uh, you know, keeping up with current events. I think it's okay. But I think it's far more, and, and you need to do that, but it's far more important for ministry to, in that, the, the things that are happening, to exegete them to their essence, right? To understand where are they really going wrong biblically and, and what do people need? What kind of solid truth do they need so, you know, people are wondering if their very biological nature is something stable and reliable, right? Well, when they're wondering that, they need truth that is faithful to what is there. They don't need judgment, but they need help, right? True to what is there that's reliable, that will last forever, that won't change with some fleeting whim of culture, right? Faithful. Unfortunately, already in Malachi's time, priests were already beginning to fail in this function. But more positively, already in Malachi's time, uh, if you read the Old Testament a little bit as a flat book, you're going to get confused about this. Already by the time of Malachi, 
uh, the priest was less about less a butcher, right? <laughs> you know, getting all the stuff right. You know, all the sacrifices in, in Le- Leviticus, and more about making sure, uh, really teaching the law. And so we see this, for example, in uh, the Book of Ezra, where he's up on a big stand and got a big, you know, pulpit and he's got the law laid out there, and he's explaining how he's uh, applied the law to their day in the new circumstance. And then you've got all these Levites. They say they are interpreting the law to the people. Now, some of that might have been actual language problems, right, because they didn't know Hebrew. Uh, but also they're, they're explaining to their compatriots, you know, this is what it means to follow the law. So it's a good example in Ezra, but uh, they were slipping a little bit in the time of Malachi. But it's really about truth, so faithful instruction. So certainly, again, for me as a pastor, this is key, yes. The temptation, of course, is to compromise truth to make people feel better in the short term. And the prophets wrestle with this. Isaiah, I remember, wrestled with this. Some of you that were around for that series remember that, that you, if, if the message is going to harden, what do you do? And we concluded at that time when we studied Isaiah that to hold back on the message is no good. They just go on their happy way. So even if the message is going to harden, you, you, you share it in the hope that ultimately the person becomes so hard they break and the brittleness and the grace of God get through. We live in a culture, especially in the university culture and some corporate cultures where triggering has oversensitized even honest disagreements. So sometimes you're going to be in settings where it's going to be hard to say the truth and you may need to be judicious. At least don't say a lie, right? When you, uh, but let me just give one example. Uh, I was not a believer in high school. I had been exposed to the gospel and I had prayed prayers, you know, every week for a while, actually in junior high. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't think I really grasped it. And there was one guy, he wasn't a good friend of mine. Now, it's interesting. There were different people that were uh, people I knew went to church, you know. I knew they were like, went to a real church, you know, I mean, like a believing church. Um, but some of them, you know, they were such kind of goof offs that I, I don't know, I, you know, they didn't make me feel very convicted. There was one guy, and he wasn't overly serious. I was a nice guy. But, you know, when I wasn't right with God, I actually, I'd see him coming down the hall and I'd run the other way. I felt so convicted. And he was a nice guy, he wasn't mean. Right? There was truth in his life. There was Emmett. You know, there was faithful covenant instruction in his life. And uh, nothing false on our lips. Now, this means not just quoting Bible verses. And this is where I want to challenge you. I think that we got complex problems in our culture. Some of them, anyway. And I really think we need to take this book. You need to read it. You need to think about it. You can bug me, ask me questions too. Right? We'll talk about it together, get in groups, whatever. But we need to think about it and we need to look at the culture. And then I think sometimes it helps me, it may help you. I'll sometimes write out my response to certain challenges. I'm not going to read it to somebody, but you know what I'm saying? I, for myself, I'm going to write out what do I really think is the right response to this, this terrible situation or this, whatever is going on, right? transgender and whatever it might be, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, well, yeah, oh my gosh, but let's, let's, what does the Bible actually say? And write yourself an answer so you know how to respond in the moment graciously and wisely. In other words, believer, I want you to read, reflect, and write. Because see, I'm a pastor, but we're all priests. And the second quality of a good priest is true instruction.
Malachi gives one final quality of a good priest, and the final quality of a good priest is lasting influence. I love this, man. <laughs> End of verse 6, he says, uh, He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and many he turned from sin. See, again, you see that nuance from the earlier verse? He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He's got the peace. He's not like, oh, it's this religious thing. I got to do this thing. and oh, you know. He's just, hallelujah, I know God. Oh, Lord, I'm so grateful I know you. But he's not letting that make him sloppy. His peace and uprightness. And the overall lasting influence is to turn many from sin. Influence comes from walking in both the peace and the uprightness. He walks, actually, I missed a word. Is it in the, oh, yeah, it's in the NIV. He walks with me, God says, in peace and uprightness. Not just walking around somewhere. He's walking with God. What a beautiful picture. Not a driven, guilty, or fearful spirituality. This is a person who's discovered and worked through the foundations of peace and grace. But they have a fear of God, so they're upright. And the result is turning many from sin, like my friend in high school. So the final quality of a good priest is lasting influence. So today we see an eschatological vision of the kingdom Jesus ruling and we as the priests of his kingdom. And that vision starts now. It's a call to establish that foundation of grace and reverence in your life, to speak truth and to carry godly, gracious influence wherever you go. What is your step this morning? Fear of the Lord, maybe a little crumbling and all would be good for some of us. Entering into life and peace, or maybe speaking the truth with courage. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the chance to just live and marinate in your word for a few moments today. We ask that you would be working in our spirits, that those that need to be established in grace, their spirituality is still a bit driven and nervous about forgiveness. We ask in Jesus' name, just establish them in grace, but also those that would be tempted to uh, justify habits or just kind of, oh, well, you know, it's just who I am. Need a little bit of crumbling and awe. We pray that there'd be an awe that would just give us a yearning for the needed transformation. And we pray as well that when the time is there and it's right to speak the truth with gracious love, that we'd bring your truth to friends and neighbors to be a part of the healing of this city and state and nation and world. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.